Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And then there were eight. It's quarterfinals time at the World Cup and we have a wrap of the last two round of 16 games and how we got there. CAF are still flying the flag with Morocco. Portugal hit Switzerland for six. We've got Tommy Orr, former Socceroo, and Denmark World Cup international Thomas Sorensen in the pod today. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Pod. We have reached the end of the round of 16. We're getting towards the pointy end of the World Cup. And just like Portugal, we are starting our star on the bench. But don't worry, you will hear from Mark Schwarzer later in the podcast. Let's go with our starters. Former World Cup player and Socceroo, Tommy Orr. Tommy, great to have you back on the Pod. Pleasure to be back. Thank you. And of course, Denmark World Cup player, longtime international and Premier League legend, Thomas Sorensen. Tommy, great to have you on the show. Yeah, I've uh, just uh, slowly recovered from uh, from the Danish exit. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm back to good form now. (laughs) Well, speaking of back to good form, there is nowhere else we can start other than Portugal 6, Switzerland 1. One of the most lopsided knockout games in World Cup history and an amazing performance. Let's start with the biggest talking point. Cristiano Ronaldo was benched. Thomas Sorensen, this appears to directly correlate with how, how good Portugal looked. Yeah, no, I thought um, it just seems, you know, he takes up a, a lot of space on and off the field. You know, he, he's like a, a black hole up front that just sucks all the attention and, and also has a big effect, I feel, on, on the players around him. Um, I think we, we could see today with, with Ramos, who's willing to run, it opens up space for, you know, the, the three behind, um, you know, Bernardo Silva, Felix, uh, and, you know, so it, you can just see everyone is lifted. Uh, there seems to be a different energy about the team and, and it's, it's the same, same at, at Manchester United uh, with Ronaldo. So, you know, it's come to that stage. You can see that age is, is starting to show and, and the modern game moves quickly. So, um, I think it was the right decision, um, uh, to leave him on the bench and, uh, you know, it, it showed on the pitch. Great, great performance. Uh, very convincing and, and some great individual brilliance as well. Yeah, I think obviously we saw, you know, against Korea when Ronaldo was substituted, he had a really bad reaction. And I think before this match, the coach made some comments about how he wasn't happy with how he responded to being substituted. And I mean, I'm sure that might have played a bit of a part in putting him on the bench today. But, you know, his decision was completely vindicated because Ramos, like you just said, Thomas, was unbelievable and has a hat-trick to boot. So I guess we might be seeing the, the long-term replacement for, for Ronaldo there in Portugal. So, I mean, yeah, I thought I thought Portugal was fantastic today and, you know, the, the free-flowing football in the front third and, like you mentioned, you know, some of the attacking talent they have with Yael Felix and these types of players, it, it was incredible. And when you, when you consider they've got the likes of, Cancelo and these types of players being unused subs, you know, he's, he's one of the best fullbacks in the Premier League. It, it's, um, yeah, they're making a compelling case to maybe go all the way here. 
Yeah, we've got to say it's, it was also a brave decision from Santos. Uh, you know, you got to, you, you know, you, you're talking about a young player who's only played 37 minutes of international football and, and to throw him in with the pressure of Ronaldo and, and all the media attention uh, was brave and it paid off, you know. So, um, you know, he needs a lot of credit for it. Do you think we'll see Ronaldo start again at this World Cup? I don't, to be honest. I think that, um, you know, the, the way they perform today, um, like Thomas just touched on, it changed the whole dynamics of their team. You know, having having more mobility and more enthusiasm in the front in the front third. It didn't feel like they were they were carrying anybody. Um, oh, I think that that he's kind of made that place his own now, um, Ramos. So, I mean, Ronaldo might have to be content with it with a place from the bench. But we've seen that you know in this tournament, there's still a big role for substitutes coming onto the field and having a big impact on the game. So I expect he 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 still might have you know, a few things to say going into the final games. Yeah, and it looks exciting for Portugal as well. You know, you got Rafael Leao as well. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it's not like they're, you know, searching for, for strikers. You know, they've got two great young talent that they can build on for the future. So I, I totally agree with Tommy. I, I don't think you will see him. You know, it's an end of an era, uh, I think, with um, with Portugal and It'll be ironic with the Euros and them winning uh, in France if he or if they were to go to the final and potentially win this one, and he's still not starting. Um, you know that that would be uh, you know that that would be a, a bit of bit bit of a bit strange, but uh, you know who knows? They definitely look good uh, as of this morning. Fernando Santos has been criticised so much for his loyalty to Ronaldo, but also his loyalty to perhaps older players and not being a bit more progressive with how his team approaches the games, given the talent on offer. I mean, there was a poll in the Portuguese newspaper, Bola, suggesting 70% of supporters wanted Cristiano Ronaldo dropped. So I know it's only one game, but is this a moment of enlightenment for an otherwise perhaps old-school coach in Fernando (laughs) Santos? Is this the moment where mid-tournament we have to say he's actually had a breakthrough moment? I think if you look at the likes of Pepe as well, I think obviously he's 39 years old and his influence on the team is still massive. You know, he, he's obviously scored a goal this morning, but his general kind of influence on the team and the way he leads from the back, I think that there still is a place for, you know, the experienced players in the squad. I just think that, like Thomas said before, that the baggage that comes along with Ronaldo, I think that that was the right decision to replace him. And I think it's changed the whole dynamics of the team, but... I think that they still have, you know, a lot of experience. I, see, I think there is still room for that experience in the lineup. You know, and it's a really a similar situation. Like Sweden had this situation with Ibrahimovic at the end of his career, and you know everything that went with him. And eventually, the scale tips. The, the you know, Ronaldo, you you know, at least the last couple of years, you've lived off those moments of brilliance, but they just seem to dry up. Um, and then. You know, you can't carry anyone in, in, in this day and age, you know. So, you know, yeah, sadly, I, I, f- I feel, um, you know, that that's the end of, of his uh, at least starting um, position at, in a national team. G- generational change from an all-time superstar to who's next is always difficult, Tommy. But I guess Australia went through it with uh, Optus Sports' very own Mark Schwarzer. We went through it with Tim Cahill. It's yeah. not to the same level of Ronaldo, though. As much as as much as Tim Cahill, you know, Brand Cahill and the celebrity of Tim Cahill is the biggest, you know, along with Harry Kuehl, probably the biggest we've ever seen. Yeah, no one's Ronaldo, are they? 
That's right. And I think you'll see after this World Cup, you'll see the same with the likes of Messi. You know, Argentina, they're, they're going to have a bit of an identity crisis because like Portugal, you know, their national teams have revolved around those two players for the last, you know, 15 years maybe. So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's just the way football goes. And I think you saw this morning that both, uh, obviously, Portugal has, has some, you know, world-class talent coming through the ranks. And, you know, it, it can be healthy as well, not to be so reliant on one individual. So I think that, yeah, there'll definitely be changes in these national teams, but it won't necessarily mean that they'll there'll be a drop off in quality. Now, uh, I have to have to feel um, for Mbappe here because uh, any record that he breaks tends to be youngest since Pele. But today, uh, Gonzalo Ramos becomes the youngest World Cup player to score a hat trick since Pele in 1958 in the semi final against Sweden. So, Tommy, does Mbappe come back and reclaim his youngest since Pele crown at least on that count? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I don't think Mbappe will finish his career with... I think he'll have a lot of records. So I think he can afford to lose that one, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, again, I think Mbappe, uh, you know, again, we, we, we've talked about his brilliance. And, uh, yeah, he's going to score. He's going to beat closest, uh, I think, all-time goal-scoring record uh, of 16 goals uh, at World Cups as well. He's well on his way. Uh, I think you'll have a bit of a contest against England. I'm not too confident about France, but we'll we'll see. With Mbappe in the team, anything can happen. But uh, yeah, and again, I, I think it's great. And and fingers crossed for Pele. Uh, you know, obviously he's going through uh, s- some struggles, and uh, you know, so so it's good that we are reminded of of his brilliance as well and what he did for the game back in the day. Now, uh, Thomas, uh, when Benfica sold Joao Felix to Atletico Madrid, they made about £120 million out of it. Gonzalo Ramos is only 21. He's got 14 goals and six assists in all games for Benfica this season. We've been spending this World Cup talking about breakout players, talking about who's in the shop window. Benfica's accountants must be just absolutely rubbing their hands together that if they were making that much money on Joao Felix, how much money are they going to make on Gonzalo Ramos here? <laughs> oh, they seem to have a great business model. We, we can't forget Darwin Nunez as well uh, to, to Liverpool. So they've, they've done some great business, uh, uh, Benfica. And, uh, you know, the, the way they scout for talent, the way they bring it through... Um, you know they've they've got a, a young Danish. It just seems to young Danish player that's gone there, Bar as well, who came on against the Socceroos. They just seem to be able to identify young players and then elevate their game through their their system. Um, you know it'll be a great case study to go there and and um, you know and they still, despite selling these players, they're still produced. They're still doing well in the Champions League. Uh, they were in group with PSG and Juventus, I think, and and went through so. Yeah, you know, uh, Ramos is going to be another payday at some point. I don't think they're going to sell him straight off the bat, but I'm sure a couple of years from now, he's going to go to one of the, the big teams if, if he continues to ascend. I, I know this is a, a very broad question, Tommy, but based on his performance today and the attributes he's got, the record he has, and also the, the mix of goals and assists, is he someone that's going to pop up on the radar of the very top clubs? Or do you think he could be falling into that sort of, you know, West Ham-ish sort of category where Premier League money still allows you to spend 60, 70, 80 million on a player as opposed to 100 million plus? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the decision will also be what kind of football, you know, think he thinks he'll kind of fit into well because obviously there's a lot of players that go to the Premier League who, you know, it's not necessarily the best fit and... Uh, obviously at Benfica, he would be, you know, enjoying dominating most of the matches they're playing. He'd be getting good service. So I'm sure that 
these are kind of decisions that will tie into any kind of future transfer he'll make. But um, yeah, I mean, just looking, obviously this is a, a broad comment, but, you know, I think the likes of Manchester United could use with a player like him because, you know, they don't really have a number nine, you know, that you saw his first goal this morning and how clinical it was. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a real instinct and striker's finish. And I think that there's a lot of top clubs around the world that would, yeah, they're yearning for a player that can is capable of doing moments like that. And you mentioned Pepe and his age before. Olivier Giroud became the oldest player to score in a World Cup knockout game since Roger Miller, uh, who was 42 at the time, and Giroud was 36. And, and that record had been standing since the 1990 World Cup Italia 90. And yet here comes Pepe and steals that record from him in three days. So <laughs> Giroud didn't get much time to enjoy being the oldest player to score in a knockout for a very long time. Yeah, no, again... You know, it's great to see these players, uh, you know, still hanging in there, still have the motivation and still dominating. I think, uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic to see. I, I know how much I played late into my, uh, you know, my years and, and I know how much it takes to stay fit and stay focused and, and the commitment it, it takes as well. So, so that's some of the things that you don't really take into consideration. You know, they, they've played for many, many years and to still do it at this level is, is incredible. Now, one last one on this game, and I don't get up on my uh, Italian soapbox very often. I don't tend to cheer for them in international tournaments, and in 2006, I was as dirty as anyone about Fabio Grosso. But bloody hell, Switzerland, you're the reason Italy wasn't at this World Cup, and, and you've turned your toes up here. What? Are, I'm going to channel Michael Bridges. That was a disgrace. I mean, Thomas, what can we say about Switzerland here? They, they Look, they, they get through groups. They qualify for major tournaments. And at the last Euros, they did knock out France. But my goodness, they have absolutely laid an egg in this one. Yeah, it, it, it's strange. Um, and I'm sure if Bridget was on, he would try to protect Fabian Shah. I don't think he had the, the greatest morning uh, as, as a Newcastle player. Uh, obviously stopped at halftime. Uh, didn't look uh, too good. Got a yellow as well. Uh, I, I, you know, I thought they could take Portugal right to the edge. You know, they, I thought they looked decent in the group. Um, you know, I tend to, tend to just, you know, put it down to an off day. Um, it, it's, it's hard to explain because they were totally outplayed, outgunned, uh, at, at all levels of the game. And, um, you know, that's definitely something, uh, you know, back to the drawing board because, it just leaves you with a bit of a bad taste, you know. Uh, you know, I'm sure in Switzerland, as you said, the way they finished their group and everything, uh, you they would have expected a lot more, at least to uh, have taken Portugal all the way. Tommy, Switzerland's Euro 2024 qualifying group is Israel, Romania, Kosovo, Belarus, Andorra. Uh, that to me sounds like an unbeaten group. What can they possibly <laughs> learn? What can they possibly learn from this? Is it about the Nations League for them and the chance to play against top opposition? Because I again, they'll easily qualify for Euro 2024, and yeah. it's not until they come up against Europe's very best that they hit these hurdles. So, what can they actually learn out of this World Cup experience? Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think this morning's game. You know, they, they obviously conceded two goals, and then all of a sudden they have to start chasing the game, and then they leave themselves vulnerable. And against an attack like Portugal, where they were, you know, they were scintillating this morning, there's every chance that the other team's going to run away with it. So I think that you know, at two 0 down, had they shut up shop a bit more, the, the scoreline could have been a bit more respectful. But you know, it, it's one of those things. I, I think that. Um, Switzerland is, you know, if you look at their team on paper, and there's no doubt that they've got some world-class players, but if you're looking at 
comparing, you know, the Portugals and these types of teams with them, I think that they do tend to overachieve. So it's, it's you know, like you said, they've got a favourable draw for the, for the Euros and they'll almost certainly qualify. But I think that because they, they overachieve so consistently, the expectations on them are probably a bit inflated maybe because, I, being honest, I don't think they have the quality in their team to, to win these kind of tournaments. And the fact they keep getting to the knockout rounds is probably a good achievement in itself. You're listening to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. The Gagan Pod will be right back after this short break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to the Gagan Pod. It's time to get on to the next game and the uh, penultimate game of the round of 16. It was a scoreless draw through 120 minutes and congratulations to Michael Bridges who did tip that this one would go to penalties yesterday. He said he didn't want it to be a nil-all draw. We were not so lucky. Thomas Sorensen, Morocco wins the penalty shootout 3-0. We spoke to Mark Schwartzer yesterday about the penalty takers in this tournament, why so many are getting missed, why so many are getting saved. Give us your assessment of this game and by all means talk about Yassine Bonu and his fantastic <laughs> goalkeeping both uh, throughout the 120 minutes, but also the shootout too. Yeah, no, again, Morocco has been fantastic. Uh, you know, this has got a, a clearly defined style of play, obviously built from a, a solid uh, defense. You know, they've only conceded uh, one goal. But, you know, it, it's just great to see they work I- extremely hard uh, and then hit teams quickly on the on the counter. I thought Amrabat in, in midfield, I thought he was everywhere. Um, and then you, you got, uh, obviously, Siek and Bufal uh, up front, Hakimi as well uh, on, on the right-hand side. And, and I always, to some extent, feared for, for, for Spain. You know, they, they play, but, uh, you know, they don't have the firepower, in my view. They've, they've chopped and changed. Obviously, uh, Asensio started, uh, you know, this game. Morata on the bench. Um, and, and I thought we saw against Japan as well that the struggles they have to you know, to score, to, to create chances. Um, yes, I, I thought it was an anomaly that the first game against Costa Rica and maybe it lured them into a bit of a false sense of security because since then they, they have not had that cutting edge that other teams have had. And then, you know, I got a feel for Sarabia. Obviously he comes on, he hits the post with uh, the last kick of the game, more or less. And then, the next kick he takes, he, he hits the post again. And, and I think it just set a, a precedent for, you know, for, for Spain. You know, the, the pressure just came down on him. And, and Bono, you know, fair credit to him. I thought he's had a great tournament. He had that game where he, he disappeared before the lineups and, and uh, the reserve keeper came in. But in all the other games, he, he's been tremendous, uh, you know, um, playing in, in Morocco. And uh, I'm sure... Uh, there's some big things for him now. He's he's put himself on on the world stage and and, and has come off big like Livakovic did uh, for Croatia yesterday. You know these are the big moments for goalkeepers. Uh, you know you ha- you haven't got much to lose, uh, but you can become the big hero. And and for sure he was the the big hero and deserved it this morning. 
Well, let's get another goalkeeper's perspective and cross over to Mark Schwarzer in Qatar for his thoughts. Well, Bono, as we know uh, him, and obviously the world knows him now, certainly after saving two penalties in the, in the shootout against Spain. Um, look, I, I think he's been outstanding over the last couple of years, as you as we're saying here. You know, goalkeeper of the season last season in, in La Liga, um, so he's been well known. I think Sevilla is a big club. <clears throat> we know that this season they're having a bit of a, a bit of a nightmare run, but prior to that, uh, European runs have been exceptional, and uh, they're finishing in the top. So the top four to five teams in in La Liga consistently over the last couple of seasons. So, uh, I mean, um, you know, it really depends on what happens with Sevilla this season. But I think if um, if they can, you know, stabilise the ship and get back to winning ways and find their way back up the table, then I wouldn't be surprised if he did stay. Um, but again, it depends on what happens now in the uh, in the latter stages of the tournament. Do Morocco go on and potentially create a? Bigger upset, am I probably fair in saying, if they beat Portugal? Because Portugal look unbelievable. Um, so, and if he does that and he plays a big part in it, you know, who knows? Then some of the bigger clubs may come knocking. Um, but he's certainly uh, shown that, you know, he's, he's, he's able to handle the big pressure situations and looks a very good goalkeeper. Thank you, Mark. And Tommy Orr, how about your assessment of Morocco's nil all through 120 minutes against Spain, beating them on penalties? Yeah, so obviously Thomas touched on it, but I think, you know, Spain had 76% of possession, but it was death by possession, but they were very underwhelming. They didn't really do a lot with the ball, and I think that was a little bit of a theme from their game against Japan as well. You know, there's no purpose to their possession. They're not creating many chances, and um, that kind of suited Morocco well because they obviously, you know, have a really good record defensively. I think that in the last six hours, they've only conceded one own goal, like Thomas said, so... I mean, defensively, they're they're rock solid, and it kind of played into their hands because they were, you know, they stayed very compact and were able to kind of launch counter attacks, and they didn't create any any huge opportunities. But you always felt that they were a chance, you know, with the likes of Ziyech and these types of players in the front third, they're always every chance. And obviously, Thomas touched on Sufyan Amrabat, um, the defensive midfielder for Morocco, and I think he kind of embodies everything about that Morocco side and why they've been so effective and. I actually played with him in Utrecht eight years ago. So he was only um, 18 at the time, and I think he was probably about 20 kilograms lighter. So I think he's been in the gym for the last 10 years looking on the TV. So, I mean, it's it's great to see him doing so well. But, I mean, the, the physical presence that he kind of has on in the middle of the pitch, I think that, yeah, Spain kind of struggled, and they, 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 they started to go out wide, and they didn't really have any of the answers. Um, but for Morocco, I mean, it's amazing, and, and you saw... In, in their own country back home, how much it means to them. And it's it's great to have a, an African nation in the, in the quarterfinals. Uh, Thomas, you started to touch on what next for Spain. Uh, Luis Enrique certainly taken a different approach to this World Cup. Uh, he's had some wild press conferences being hugely criticised by the media for not calling up enough Real Madrid players. He then had the nightly Twitch sessions where he would just take questions from anywhere in the world. Do they need a new approach? Is Tiki Taka the future for Spain? And is Luis Enrique the manager to oversee that future? Yeah, no, it's fun because when you start looking at the trends of, of this World Cup and, and what teams do, um, you know, we, we looked at, you know, in 2010 and, you know, Spain winning the, the Euros and, the, you know, the World Cup, you know, everyone was trying to emulate that style of play of possession and, you know, movement and not really having that, you know, out and out striker. But it seems, you know, now, you know, the teams that are su- succeeding at this World Cup, you know, are a little bit more 
direct, more efficient, uh, you know, you know, just having those players that can, that can score your goals because that ultimately that's, you know, you can have a, like Portugal, oh, sorry, Spain this morning having a, a thousand passes, but what does it get you? Uh, at the end of the day, you need to score. And, um, so, you know, I, I think Enrique will, will probably step down. I think, um, I don't, I haven't sort of heard what, what the, what the, you know, what's coming out of Spain, but, uh, you know, maybe they need a new f- fresh, uh, f- some fresh blood in there, some new ideas, potentially a change of, um, you know, some other players trying to, uh, you know, look deeper into, uh, <laughs> where they are and, you know, potentially develop other types of players because it, they all seem the same. You look at the Spanish team, you know, every player looks the same. I don't, I don't really see. Other than Morata, he is a little bit different, but other than that, it's it's all great technical. But mm, where's the end product sometimes? Tommy, you go through a bit of recent World Cup history. Italy have not won a knockout game since two thousand and six. Spain now have not won a knockout game since two thousand and ten. And obviously, Germany have not won a knockout game since two thousand and fourteen. I mean, I know there's European Championships in dispersed with that and Nations League now and, you know, the perception of these teams as being powerhouses. But it's three of world football's biggest teams and all of them have now embarked on their own streaks of not actually doing well at World Cups. Yeah, and obviously you touched on Italy and obviously they did win the last European Championship, so they've had a little bit of success. But, I mean, it's definitely a bit of a change in in kind of, yeah, it'll be disappointing for them how they fared in the last tournaments. And I think... You know, further to what Thomas Thomas just touched on with the the, you know, I think that these days it's the the football that's working in these tournaments is completely different to what it was ten years ago, and I think he was exactly right in that the the more pragmatic teams seem to be doing better, and that's typically not how those countries play. Obviously, Italy being the exception, but um, yeah, I think that like Thomas said, it's going to be back to the drawing board for them, and I think they're they're potentially going to have a little bit of an identity crisis um, going forward, and going to have to make some changes like Thomas just mentioned. Well, let's get Mark Schwartz's opinion on Spain as well. Schwartzy, what next for them? I'm not sure that Spain are any better than what we've seen so far. Yes, they uh, you know, they got off to an absolute flyer in their first game of this World Cup, winning 7-0. Um, <clears throat> and they looked absolutely insane against Costa Rica. I think it was just one of those moments. We've seen it over the last couple of years as well. They beat Germany, I think, what, 6-0 in Spain as well. I think there are moments when everything, everything works for them. And obviously, it's very difficult to play against them. But they're too far, few and far between. And having seen this World Cup, watched them against Germany live in, 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 in the stadium. Yeah, they look great in possession, but with very little end product, with very little... They've got nothing in the pointy end. They really struggled. Today was the same. At times they looked okay on possession. They caused Morocco no real great danger or threats. Um, and that's the real worry, is that... that that um, <clears throat> with all that possession, they're, they're almost like Spain of, of well, they're trying to play like Spain of you know 15 years ago, 10 years ago, um, except they had they had the players up front to score goals. They just don't have that now. Um, so a bit worrying. Does Enrique continue? Um, look, that's an interesting one, and I think I, I think they'll be bitterly disappointed about being knocked out by Morocco, even though I think Morocco deserved it. Morocco. For chances and the way that they played the game, approached the game, were better than Spain today. I, I've got no doubt about that. Um, Spain certainly underperformed uh, what was from what they've showed earlier on in the tournament. Um, so <clears throat> it's an interesting one to see whether or not 
Luis Enrique does stay or not. I think he'd like to stay. It's whether or not the Spanish uh, Federation will want to keep him and, and believe still in the Enrique way. Um, I'm not quite so sure. Thanks to Mark Schwarzer there. All right, just to finish on this game, Morocco will play Portugal now in the quarterfinals. It's a sensational opportunity for CAF and African football. Some of the social media content coming out of Morocco is superb. You know, they've got huge crowds at this tournament. Uh, it, there's been a lot of talk about it being, you know, in the Middle East and the Arab world's first World Cup. So it is excellent to see a team from North Africa that's got this far. Um, is Portugal the end of the line? Guys, or do you think that uh, we could, for the very first time, see a CAF team in the semifinals? Of course, the closest we've gotten was Ghana and that infamous game against Uruguay in 2010. It's never happened before. Is this going to be a first time ever? It's got to be interesting. Um, You know, when you can keep clean sheets, uh, you always got a chance. Uh, And that's going to be their, you know, still their philosophy uh, against Portugal. Um, I, I, I just think that Portugal... They just look uh, more potent um, than um, you know than Spain did, and uh, you know it, it, it'll be a question. You know, if they go behind Morocco, what do they do then? You know, do they have a plan B when they have to be more expansive when they have to take chances? You know, so so that's that's going to be the key. You know, getting the first goal uh, in this game will be you know even more important than than, than any other game. Uh, and I'm sure you know Portugal will will have a great look. You know, they've got a template and see what to do and what not to do from from the Spain game. Uh, and then they'll, uh, I I think it'll be a step too far for for Morocco, but it's going to be a tight game for sure. Yeah, because I think if you look at who Morocco's kind of beaten so far in this tournament. Obviously, they drew with Croatia, but then they knocked out Belgium, Spain. So they haven't done it easy, this tournament. So they've proven themselves kind of capable of beating the big teams. But I do agree with Thomas. I think uh, I think this will be like a step too far for them. And if, if you, you know, obviously they went to penalties and, and the physical kind of output they had to put into their game this morning compared to Portugal's and with a short turnaround, I think that will play a role as well because you know, the energy and the, the pressing and how they kind of don't give the opposition any time on the ball. That's kind of been a, a really integral part of their playing style. And, you know, even just being one of 2% more fatigued than the other than the opponents, I think that can make all the difference. Um, yeah, you know, as you get to this later stage of the tournament. So I think that, I think Portugal will be too strong for them. All right. Eight teams left. Uh, quick fire answers. Who is winning the World Cup from here? Brazil. Argentina. <laughs> Simple answer. You think Argentina? Ooh, okay. Well, I'm just sticking to my guns. So I don't. I haven't liked yeah, what I've seen good. so yeah. far. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I like. I like. I like sticking to your guns. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> Who is going to finish top scorer? I. I. I okay. Uh, I. I still think um, uh, one of the Brazilian players. Um, yeah, um, I, I still think they've got enough goals. I, I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna be too good to, uh, you know, too good to, uh, against uh, um, Croatia. Um, yeah. So, um, who is it gonna be? Uh, Vinicius. I think he can still knock in four or five. And who will win the golden ball? Who's going to be player of the tournament? Well, for Argentina to win, it has to be Messi. So uh, I think <laughs> just uh, yeah. Just to double down, I'm, I think I'm going to have to go with Messi. Um, 
Uh, I, I, I think Neymar is going to win it. Uh, I think he's going to have a... I was quite encouraged with how he came through the game the other day. Um, and, and Brazil just look back to front, just look the best team. Uh, uh, unbelievable fluency in, in the way they play. Um, so... Yeah, and I just haven't, I've seen vulnerabilities in other teams. I think, you know, you can look at France, you can look at England, you know, you can look at Argentina. Uh, and uh, I just see some frailties at the back and Brazil just look uh, really strong. Um, so, that, yeah, so I've, I've, I'll go with Neymar. All right. Let's change gears and talk about something a little bit different. The A-League men's starts back up this weekend. And, of course, the league is very well positioned to capitalise on the Socceroos advancing to the round of 16 at the World Cup. Let's start off this little chat with Mark Schwartz's thoughts on the return of the A-League. I'm not really sure how well the A-League clubs are actually positioned. I would like to think they're in a, in a pretty good position. Um, they've had a, a little bit of time. You would, you would have hoped that maybe there were some plans uh, thought about prior to the World Cup and saying, like, along the lines of, hey, what happens if the Socceroos do well at this World Cup? They exceed all expectations. How do we capitalise if that were to be the case? Um, When you look at the data, um, 65% of the men's FIFA World Cup squad were developed by the A-League academies. 21 of these players played in the A-League. Eight players are currently at A-League clubs, um, which is is impressive. It really is. I, I think that's also because of the manager. I think the manager had a big say in that, Graham Arnold, in, in the type of squad that he wanted to pick, the type of balance he wanted to find. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you, I think we'll see that the A-League will certainly, I think, gain an advantage from the Socceroos' performances um, and see they'll see a, 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 an immediate response from the Socceroos performing so well at the World Cup and so many players that are in the A-League uh, at those A-League clubs. The question is, how do they maintain that? How do they hold on to the extra supporters? How how do they tap into the extra excitement that surrounds, um, you know, the the World Cup, the performance of the Socceroos, and take that into the A League, um, and and that's going to be the big challenge. Um, one worrying thing for me is that, <clears throat> you know, it was on free to wear, and now it's it's still on free to wear, but it's in a, a, a not in their main channel. It's one of the back channels, and that's a bit of a worry. Um, I just hope that football itself continues to push and football needs to look after football and we need to stick together. I've talked about it many, many times before and a bit of a broken record these days, but in terms of state federations, national federation, all need to work together and we don't do it enough. And this is a, another, another, I say, incredible opportunity to really apply pressure to the very top, to state governments, federal governments, to demand why we don't receive the equal amount. Equal. I'm, I'm, I'm even only asking for equal equality at the moment with other codes, player for player, investment by state federations. State federations seem to, or state governments, sorry, seem to be the biggest, um, the biggest candidates at the moment, or the biggest um, um, people who are not living up to expectation, the ones who are not delivering when it comes to investment and at, the, at least being on a, on, on a par with other codes, um, that's really disappointing and that needs to change and we need to put pressure on them. The public do, the football clubs do, the state federations as well as the football federation. 
it's great to see that clubs are doing guard of honours for, for the Socceroo players coming back. They deserve it, 100%. On-pitch presentations for the Socceroos returning, that is a given, and it's brilliant that they're doing it because it, I say it's a given, but it doesn't always happen. So I take my hat off to all the A-League clubs that are doing that. I, I, that, that is absolutely brilliant. Signing sessions, post-matches for the Socceroos players. And that is what we need to continue to do. We need to keep pushing these guys up on that pedestal. We need to keep using them as examples. And we need to keep putting pressure and screaming louder and louder about equality and about receiving the funding that we deserve per capita. Number of players that play football compared to other codes far exceeds any of them. We need to be paid and, and funded equally. Thanks, Mark. So we've heard from Schwartzy over on the ground in Qatar. The APL put out a report today saying 65% of the Australian World Cup squad were developed by the A-League academies. 21 of the players had played in the A-League men's. Eight of the players of record are current A-League men's players, so they're going to be returning to their clubs. And also that the A-League men's has invested $45 million in youth development in recent years. Uh, we talk a lot and have talked a lot about how to capitalise on the Socceroos' success. Tommy Orr, let's start with you. What are you hoping to see this weekend, but also heading into this Christmas period where there's going to be plenty of people on school holidays to go to football? Uh, what do you want to see and what needs to happen? Well, I think that the you know before the World Cup, the general consensus with people who were you know maybe part-time fans of football but didn't necessarily support the A-League was that the A-League wasn't a good league. And I think, obviously, a lot of these people would have watched the Socceroos' performances and, you know, the likes of Matt Leckie and Craig Goodwin, they obviously caught the imagination of the whole country. And I think that kind of put those opinions, yeah, it, it put them to bed, really. I mean, there is a lot of quality in the A-League and, and those statistics you just touched on kind of prove it. And I think that, you know, the game's got really good momentum now. There's obviously the Women's World Cup coming up in six months, but I think we, we, we were discussing it yesterday I think, you know, getting more eyes on, on the TV, on the A-League and more bums in the seats in the crowd is a really important thing for Australian football. And I think that um, a lot of the other issues that we have kind of as a footballing nation will go away if, if the A-League can find a way to to convert these part-time football fans sorts of things into fans of the A-League. And um, uh, to be honest, I think the APL, um, you know, I think that they're making all the right noises and it, it, it sounds like Danny Townsend is, is fully aware and, of the opportunity that's in front of him. And I'm really excited, to be honest. Um, I'm expecting, you know, good crowds on the weekend. I think, you know, Adelaide, the, the, you saw the reception that they gave Craig Goodwin when he landed at the airport there. And, I mean, this is that's not really the, the type of um, fanfare that you kind of used to associate with the A-League. And I think that's a good sign. And um, hopefully we can see more people at the games and more, more hype around the general public for the A-League. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it could turn into a, a perfect storm, and I, I totally agree with with what you're saying. I think it, it's come at exactly the right time, you know, leading into the Women's World Cup. Um, you know, A League players doing well, you know, and and alongside the APL spending money on on their content and everything else, you know, suddenly you've created a lot of extra storylines, um, and and again, you you've reached and can reach a, a broader broader public um yeah and that negative narrative that that i've sensed in and around the league uh like you said tommy you know that that can you know you can solely put that to bed because you've got no arguments because you've seen players from the a-league uh you know mixing it with argentina and messi 
So yeah, so I I hope that uh, you know it can sort of yeah just uh, put a booster rocket uh, at the end and 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 really you know we have the Melbourne Derby coming up in in just over a week uh, and hopefully that'll be a sellout. You know, so, so there's some some great things happening, and and the A League needs it, and uh, you know it's an exciting league. You know, I followed it for and obviously played a bit, and it, it's better, a lot better than a lot of people want to make it out. With that said, Tommy, it's it, it is a little bit more complex than uh, look at what the Socceroos did. Therefore, you should forgive some of the issues. Like Raw fans <laughs> are still saying, "Hey, our game's in Redcliffe. That problem hasn't been solved." Yep. Western Western United still don't have a stadium. Macarthur are still struggling to build their crowds. So, yep. is, is this a case of? Yeah, you know, we can appreciate the quality of the players the league has produced on the world stage, but how much responsibility do the clubs have to take now, given that the APL is their collective movement? So any problem that the league has, ultimately it's the club's responsibility to fix. They're the ones that essentially appoint the APL administration to govern them. Yeah, and it's obviously in their interest to fix these issues. And I think Thomas just touched on it. You know, we're, we're, A lot of the narrative around the A-League and the criticisms are usually often to do with on the field, the quality of the football. And obviously we discussed how that's probably not a valid argument anymore. But like Thomas mentioned, the investment that the APL has started to make, I mean, I'm not sure that we've seen the fruits of that investment come to, you know, come to bear yet. And I think that, like Thomas said, it's it's the perfect kind of marriage now because, you know, the, a lot of the, the, the cynicism or the, the critical, the criticism, sorry, of, of the football is kind of, put to bed and that's coinciding with with some great investment that we can hopefully see the benefits of um you know in 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 the next kind of six to 12 months but i mean that there's no doubt there is still some some kind of issues that need resolving the brisbane one is certainly one of them and i'm, I'm sure the apl will, will be doing everything in their power to to solve those issues well, one other thing for the A-League this weekend, there are guards of honour planned in Sydney, the Central Coast and Brisbane for some of the returning players, including on-pitch presentations for the returning Socceroos and also signing sessions post-match. And fans uh, were hearing that there are going to be incentives to wear their Socceroos jersey. And this ties back into something that I think has also been discussed a lot out of the Socceroos performances, Tommy, which is that um, really... Uh, what we've seen at Fed Square and, and now at Tumbalong Park in Sydney, the watch-along sites, they're going to apparently continue for the semi-finals and the final of the World Cup. But it's about also having that event sort of feel to more Socceroos games than just the World Cup. I guess we're going to get a litmus test with this Asian Cup in a year's time. I mean, do you feel as though the magic of the Socceroos being a major event when they play can extend beyond just being at a World Cup? Or is it the sort of thing that only a World Cup can get the people out on the streets for? I think it's a little bit of both because I think that, you know, I think it's been touched on. Arnie even said it in one of his press conferences. I think that nothing really brings the nation together like the Socceroos and the Matildas. You know, it's it's a it's a really good kind of snapshot of Australian society. It's a very multicultural team in the sense that everybody's come from different upbringings and it's, it's a really good snapshot of Australian society and everybody seems to really get behind the team. But you know, I think that the the images we're seeing from you know Federation Square and these types of places, and in Sydney in the last game, that that is the hype of the World Cup. I think it's going to be difficult to recreate that you know that level of fanfare for you know lower profile games. But at the same time, there's no reason that you know there can't be more fanfare than there was beforehand. And I think that you know it'll be it's kind of unrealistic to expect this in every time the Socceroos play. But at the same time, there's definitely 
perhaps some learnings that we can take from this and um, make the experience for Socceroos fans and Matildas fans more exciting and in- incentivize them to come back to, to these kind of spaces to watch the match. Yeah, and I also think it, it's also about a, a change of culture because it, it's not a natural thing. You know, football is is not sort of ingrained uh, as much as other sports, you know, in Australia. And 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 to have these experiences around football and and for people to experience to make football an event, um, I think it's something new. And and you know, we uh, you know we touched on you know obviously the women's World Cup coming up, um, and. You know, local governments suddenly having to, you know, to have to give in to the demand of, of people. Hopefully, it's something that can just, you know, be a rollover to to the Women's World Cup next year. You know, where people just get excited about, okay, let let's get out on the street or let's go and and watch it together, and 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 that, that's where you create the emotions and the attachment to the sport as well. So so we can't overlook that it's. It gives people an experience that uh, that will hopefully have them hanging hang around, um, and and will slowly start to to build as years go by. Because it, it's a natural thing in Europe and everywhere else, but in Australia, it's a new thing. So it, it, it's a. I thought it was great to see so many people on the street. Well, if you are getting out to an A-League game this weekend or you are watching, make sure you check out the MacArthur versus Victory match on Sunday because I hear the commentator for that game is going to be pretty good. <laughs> All right. Uh, Thomas Thomas Sorensen, thank you for joining us on the Gig and Pod once again. Hey, we get a, we get a couple of rest days now. We're going to have withdrawal symptoms, but um, uh, we look forward to chatting to you again at the pointy end of the tournament. Time to get some sleep, I think. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Tommy Orr, it's been fantastic having you on the Gegen Pod once again. Enjoy a couple of rest days and we'll catch up with you again soon. Yeah, looking forward to the quarterfinals. So see you again soon. Yeah, so big thanks there to Tommy Orr and Thomas Sorensen and, of course, Mark Schwarzer, our man on the ground in Qatar. Make sure you hit subscribe and rate us five stars while you're there. If the World Cup has not been enough of a football fix, don't forget the WSL is live and exclusive on Optus Sport Platforms. My name's Teo Pelizzeri. Thank you for your company on today's show. Don't forget, Amy Duggan will be back as host on the next Gigan Pod, so make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss a drop. This has been the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah.